Hey, Brine Lions! I'm Tim. And I'm Emily. And this is On the Hill with Tim and Emily. Well, it's good to be back. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, I uh, taught and served at Bryan College for 29 years. And, yeah, ooh, yeah. And, uh... This is the first year that I've been retired, and I'm not quite sure if I like it or not. I really do like not having a schedule. Wouldn't that be nice, not having a schedule, having to be, but, uh, and I do like the time that I can do a lot of what I want to do, but I'm starting to get to that boredom stage. Uh, Not there yet, but I'm starting to get there. Uh, I've been asked to speak on the subject of prayer as a spiritual discipline. I understand you've been going through some spiritual disciplines in chapel, and today we're going to talk about the subject of prayer. And to think that we're going to cover the subject of prayer in 20 minutes is an impossibility, but I'm going to try to do my best and give you something that I hope you'll find helpful. Um, If I were to tell you how much time I have spent studying about prayer, researching about prayer, reading about prayer, you might think I was an expert. I've even, sp- I've even spent some time at a Trappist monastery to observe how the monks pray because they give so much attention to prayer uh, that I thought maybe I could pick up some, some things there. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time studying this subject for years and years and years. But you'd be wrong if you thought I was an expert. Um, I still struggle with prayer. Now... I find some satisfaction in knowing that everybody I've studied, everybody I've talked to says the same thing. Uh, They have a similar disclaimer that they still struggle with it. Whether it's Augustine, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, they all wrote about prayer and they all struggled with it. Even the Apostle Paul, even the writers of the Psalms struggled with this issue of prayer. It seems like it's, it's a universal thing to say, this is important, we should all be doing it, but why are we all struggling with it so much? And I would be a hypocrite to stand up here and give you the impression that my prayer life is where it ought to be and where I want it to be. And I suspect that's similar to a lot of you here. Seems like just about everybody prays. Uh, Muslims pray, Jews pray. Even a survey of atheists said that uh, 30% of them said they sometimes pray. (laughs) Atheists say they even pray sometimes. I don't know what to do with that. There's a couple of approaches I could have taken today. One might be give you just some formulas, some ideas, here's some resources, use these when you pray, here's kind of a list to go through. But I think there's some fundamental issues that until we solve those, none of those things are going to be helpful at all. So we're going to be somewhat conceptual today. I tend to be very pragmatic. Uh, Give me something that's useful. That's what I want. But if, if we talked about the things that are useful, the procedures to pray, here's some resources to use. I think until we deal with some fundamental issues, I don't think those things will help that much. So why is it that everybody seems to be struggling with this whole issue of prayer? Why is it 
such a universal uh, problem that even, even the people I talk to that I really admire spiritually, they tell me they struggle with this issue. So what I'd like to suggest is maybe we need a, a major paradigm shift, okay? Okay. Go back here. Maybe we need a paradigm shift, and you, you, you guys probably already know what a paradigm shift is. It's a, it's a major change in the fundamentally, fundamental way we see things. Um, probably the best example of all time is when Copernicus decided that, or he observed that it didn't look like the sun is revolving around the earth. It doesn't look like all the planets are revolving around the earth. It looks like we're all in our solar system revolving around the sun. That was a major, major shift, both uh, in the way we looked at science and the way we even looked at theology, because that was looked at very skeptically. That was a major paradigm shift in how we saw the way our solar system works. You can have a paradigm shift just in some regular everyday experience that you have where you're looking at somebody in some way, you've got all your impressions of that person, you know what they, what they, they you know who they are, you know what they are, and then you get some information that changes completely your view of that person. That would be a paradigm shift. And I'm just wondering if maybe we're ready for a, a paradigm shift when it comes to prayer. Okay, so let's think through this today together. And what I'm going to suggest is three things that need to, at least I'm going to suggest consider changing as we look at this whole subject of prayer. Uh, the first one is going to need some explanation as we talk about means and ends. What, what, is, what are we doing when we go before God and pray? Is that some means to some other end? Maybe, we, and I'll unpack that a little bit. And then we're going to talk about a little bit about moving from a transactional view of prayer to more of a relational view of prayer. And finally, if we have time, uh, moving away from a me-focused prayer to a, a, a God-focused prayer. So let's talk about what am I talking about when I'm talking about a paradigm shift from this notion of looking at God as a means to some other end. All right, I'm using some language there uh, that you might not be familiar with, but we talk about the means justifies the end. The means is how you get to another purpose. The means is something you use to, to get some other end. And I've discovered in my own thinking that, that we tend to look at God as a means to some further end, right? You might have accepted Christ as Savior as a means to what? To eternal life. Go to God. He offers salvation freely. And so God, in your thinking, starts to become a means to some further end. And then we've taught this in our churches. We have taught this uh, maybe too much, that you go to God to get something. You go to God for happiness. You go to God for success. You go to God for peace. God actually becomes a means to some other end. Are you following me on this? He becomes this thing that you get stuff from. And there's no doubt that God is the greatest giver of all gifts. He gives us salvation freely. He gives us things over and over. In the book of James it says, every good thing we have, 
is a gift from God. So in a sense, all that is true. But if that's all we see God is, I think we're going to be in for some real disappointment when it comes to prayer. If God is simply some means to some further end. Um, and I want to credit Jacob Kaplinger. We had a conversation uh, at Jennings Coffee about three, four weeks ago about this notion of means and an end. And he reminded me that Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher, talked about how we deal with people. He wasn't talking about how we deal with God, but he was talking about how we deal with people. And he talked about, he said, he, philosophers use the word unethical rather than sin or uh, evil or wrong. But Immanuel Kant said it was unethical to treat somebody as a means to some other end. You see, basically he's saying, you can't use people. That would be unethical, just to use people just for some other means. And he, he said this, he said, uh, always treat people as the ends in themselves, never as a means to an end. Are you, are you tracking with this? In other words, let's, he says, now sometimes we use people as a means to something. Uh, if, if you go to a restaurant, the server is there to serve you, to bring you your meal the way you want it, keep your, your glass of tea filled. That's what you're using that person for that. But if that's all you ever do with that person, they cease being a, a real person, don't they? You're just using them. Now, we could go, <laughs> we could talk about this forever about what happens when you start using people, and that's all you do is see people as something that you use. Kant way, way back said, that, that's just unethical. You can't do that. Don't, don't treat people that way. He wasn't talking about God, but what if we do talk about God that way? I'm just going to use God as a means to get me something else, and that's why we pray, right? As I've, I've talked with a few students about today, I say, what's your biggest question about, about prayer? And they almost all say, well, why doesn't God answer my prayers? I mean, isn't that what God's there for? I go to God as a means to some end. What if, what if God becomes the end? What if we started viewing God as, this is, this is all I want. This is all I need is God and God alone. The, the things he gives are fine, but what I need more than anything else is God. Look at Psalm 37. Delight yourself in what? the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart for the longest time I thought if I could just get all excited about God he'd give me the stuff I want he'd give me that new car that I really need he would give me this he would give me he would give he would give me all kinds of stuff if I just delighted in God then he'd give me my the stuff I want but what does that verse say delight in God Find your delight in him and him alone, and that's where you will find the greatest desires of who you are found. And so God becomes the end and not the means to something. Are you, are you, are you following with me, me on this? Okay. The paradigm shift is then to not just see God as something that gives you something else, but he gives of himself. And that's all I need. That's all I've ever wanted. That's, all, that's where my greatest desires will be met. 
You see, sometimes we go to prayer thinking prayer is that time that I go to God to prepare for my day, get my head straight, to ask God for strength for the day. In other words, I'm still using God as a means to something else. What if prayer wasn't the means to something else? What if it was the, the end? What if prayer is supposed to be that time that I spend with God and that's what the Christian life is all about, isn't it? Is my relationship to God. And so prayer isn't just preparation for something else. It's not something that I can do and if I do it right, I'll start getting stuff from God. Prayer is that fellowship with God, that interaction with God because he's the one I delight in. Now that's easier said than done because if, if that's not the desire of my heart to have a intimate relationship with God to know him if that's not enough for me then I've got to check myself and figure out what is it that that makes that not sound so exciting to me is it that I just don't really believe it that all of my desires all of my wants all of the things that make me satisfied they're found in God and God alone not just in the stuff that he gives me and maybe as we unpack these other two points, that will make a little bit more sense. But let's maybe consider the idea that we don't just look at prayer or look at God as some means to some further end. That God is the end. Okay? Which brings us to this idea that maybe we need a paradigm shift from seeing prayer as transactional and more relational. Okay? Again, we see prayer as something where I go to God, I make my request, and he gives me what I want. Um, we, we, we tend to view God like a vending machine, right? We view prayer like going to a vending machine. I, I put in my money or I put in my credit card. I make my selection and out drops my my desired item, the thing I want out of the vending machine. We look at prayer like that. God, if I pray, if I write, follow the right steps, if I pray the right things, if I say the right words, if I do it often enough, if I do all these things, I'm putting in my, my cash, my credit card. Here's what I want. Here's what I, I'm, I'm looking for. And plunk, then I get my prayers answered, right? That's a transactional view of prayer. Everything I read about prayer really, really focuses more on prayer being a relational thing. Not a transaction, but a, it's, a, it's a development of a relationship with God. Matthew 6 and Luke's account of this passage, uh, the disciples actually come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray. We've observed you doing this thing, now teach us how to do it. Or teach us to do it. Father. Now, I, I do want to stop just a moment and say I realize that can trigger some anxiety in some people, especially if you've had an abusive father. I know that. I know that. But remember that the, the lack of having something can sometimes be your greatest strength. And maybe you can relate to this even more so than those who've come to take for granted a father who is loving and caring. So I realize that all kinds of emotions and 
ideas can come up with this notion of calling God Father. But I suspect we can all imagine a perfect father. Now, I think when Jesus told the disciples, when you pray, call him father, I, I think their mouths just dropped wide open like, are you serious? Because in the Old Testament, God is not often called father. This wasn't something they would be really accustomed to, all right? In fact, the Old Testament Jews would barely pronounce the name of God for fear that they were taking the name of God in vain, right? And so they were even hesitant to call God Yahweh because they didn't want to take the, the name of the Lord in vain, the name of Yahweh in vain. And Jesus says, no, from now on when you pray, call him, your fa call him our Father, the Father. And in Romans 8, we're reminded that we cry out Abba, Father, this is the cry of a, of a child to their father. This is Abba, Father. Can you imagine someone who's been estranged from their, their father all their life? Um, and maybe they meet up and they decide, hey, we, we've got a lot of ground to make up for, and it's, it's time for us to meet and talk and get to know each other and spend time together. Can you imagine that happening? Um, people who sometimes find out who their father is after having never known who their father was. Sometimes you see those beautiful stories of them coming back together. Um, can you imagine if that happened? A father and a child coming together after being separated from one another for years and years and years and years. And they agree, let's, let's meet regularly. Let's talk regularly. Can you imagine if that child showed up, that son, that daughter showed up every single time with a list of things they wanted? Hey, I great, appreciate you meeting with me uh, on this regular basis. This is great. Now, here's my list of things I want from you. Seriously? Is that all this means to you? Is just a transaction where you come and Tell me what you want from me after all. Is that, is, that, is that effective? And then we wonder why our prayers that are like that are not very effective. And so maybe we need to move more into this relational notion of prayer. In Exodus 33, we're told that God used to talk to Moses like a friend talks to a friend. Now notice this is, this is from God's perspective. It's not Moses saying, yeah, I could talk to God like I talked to my buddies. This is God saying, I could talk to Moses like friends talk. Now, God doesn't have to have this. He doesn't need it, but he desires it and he wants it. He wants it more than you can imagine. He wants to have that time with you where you share together, you talk like friends talk to friends. I'm reminded in John 15 Jesus told the disciples, I'm, I'm no longer going to call you servants. From now on, I call you friends. God is saying, if the, if the father metaphor doesn't click with you, he says, how about a friendship? How about a friendship? Can we talk together like friends talk to friends? And again, imagine if when you meet with your friends, all you do is talk about, here's what I want out of you. 
that's not much of a relationship. Now, here's a passage that really emphasizes this point pretty significantly. In James chapter 4, it says, You lust and you do not have. You envious you cannot obtain. First of all, you don't have because you do not ask. Now, some of you are like me. When you've asked for something really important and didn't get it, you, you might give up a bit on prayer. I did that for a little bit. Four years ago, about this time, my daughter passed away. And I sat by her bedside, not consistently, but in and out for 21 days. She was in a coma most of that time. And I knew because of her writings and people who knew her, people all around the world were praying for her recovery. And I thought, God just might want to wait till Easter day and, and bring her out of that coma. But he didn't. And she died. She never came out of that coma. I had a hard time praying after that. And then I learned more and more about gaining a different perspective on prayer. Maybe prayer isn't just me asking, but how dare I give up? You don't have because you don't ask. Now, it wasn't the case then, but I think this is a warning. Don't give up. Don't give up. You don't have because you don't ask, but look what else he says. When you do ask, now catch this. This is the point here. When you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it, so that you spend what you request on your pleasures. You're just asking for stuff to make life comfortable for you. And I've found that God is not nearly as committed to my comfort as I am. This word for pleasures is the word hedonin. It's where we get the word hedonism. He's basically saying, you're a hedonist. All you ask for are things that make life more pleasurable, easier for you, that things would go well for you. But then look at the language here. I want to get the language here. It says, uh, you adulteresses. Now, this is a metaphor that the Old Testament uses a lot. Uh, in fact, James is, a lot of the characteristics of his book are Old Testament references. But he says, how does God view this when all we want is the stuff from God? We don't care about a relationship with God as much as we want the things from God to spend on our own pleasures. It's like, it's like we're cheating on God. You're going after pleasure. You're going after things rather than going after just simply God. And God says, I look at that like you're being unfaithful. Now, this is getting really intense. We've gone from father to friends now to lovers. God says, you're like a lover that's going off. You're being unfaithful. And you're going after other things to find your comfort rather than in me. Not in the stuff I can give you, but you're not finding your pleasure. You're not finding your delight in me. You're going after the other. He says it's like you're an adulteress. But then look how he ends that. Don't you know that scripture says that he jealously desires the spirit? He God reacts with in jealousy. He's jealous. We're like unfaithful lovers, and he says, I'm, 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 I'm going to tell you straight, I'm jealous. 
you're not delighting in me. You're delighting in stuff. You're delighting in things. You're delighting in all this other stuff. And some of them might be fine things, good things, but that's, that's not what God's looking for. He's looking for a, a deep, deep relationship. So maybe we need to move from a transactional view of prayer to a relational view of spending time with God. And then finally, I'd like to at least consider the idea that we move from a me-focused prayer to a God-focused prayer. Now, that might sound pretty basic, and I guess it is, but it's the idea that, and, and we'll go back to the James passage here, you don't have because you don't ask. I hope you haven't given up on prayer, but when you do pray, you're asking for your own pleasures, your own satisfactions. Back to the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, he said, pray our Father who is in heaven, then what does he say? Hallowed be your name. To hallow the name of God is to ask God to let his name be holy, to be set apart, worshipped, exalted, honored, adored on earth as it is in heaven. It's to ask God to so move and act in the world that people will worship and treasure him above all other things. And then in Luke 22, if you'll observe Jesus' prayer right before he was crucified, he knelt down and he made a request, Father, remove this cup from me. I, I take some satisfaction in knowing that Jesus, too, asked that pain and suffering be removed. I don't think he was talking about the physical pain here. I think he was talking about the pain of being separated from the Father because he bore your sin and my sin on the cross. And that must have been the hardest, hardest part of the crucifixion was his separation from the Father because of sin. Oh, and by the way, did you ever notice that all the prayers of Jesus that we have recorded, he addresses God as Father except one. Except one. And that was when Jesus hung on a cross and bore your sin and my sin. He couldn't call him Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It shows you the relationship that was interrupted because of becoming sin for us. But Jesus didn't leave it there. He said, what? Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. I suppose if I ever came across a, a genie in a bottle, or do they come in lamps? Are they lamps or bottles? I don't know. If a genie, if I found a, a lamp or a bottle and a genie comes out and says, I will grant you one wish, I doubt on even my best days that I would wish that God's name be exalted. Above all else, that God would be glorified. Until we get to that point, I'm not so sure if we go through all the methods of prayer that they're going to be very effective at all or even very satisfying. The late Christian philosopher Dallas Willard defined spiritual disciplines as an activity undertaken to bring us into more effective cooperation with Christ and his kingdom. Again, prayer is not something where I go to God just simply to get, but a spiritual discipline moves me into a place that brings me into a more effective cooperation with Christ and his kingdom. Flannery O'Connor, the famous Southern writer, was 21 years old, studying writing, 
And in 1946, she, she began keeping a handwritten prayer journal where she described her struggles to become a writer. She didn't think she was good enough. She didn't think she'd ever become a writer. And, and so she, she didn't know what to do with that. And she actually kept a journal where she, she just prayed her struggles. Just, she's struggling with this, struggling with this. And, and notice what she says in her journal. Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. And what I'm afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. You know what a makes the, the moon take different shapes. It's when the earth gets between the sun and the moon, blocks part of the moon. And Flannery O'Connor was so afraid that she had become so big that her self-shadow grew so large that it blocked the moon and that she was standing in the way of actually seeing God because herself was in the way. The things that she wanted, the things that she desired, the things that she thought she deserved. And that's what stood in the way. So when we think about prayer, I'm suggesting paradigm shift. Stop seeing God as something that just simply shells out the blessings, although he does that. But seeing the God as the end, the final product, that's what we're seeking, that's what we're looking for, is God and delighting in him. And I don't know how to manufacture that. That's not your desire. I don't know how you make it your desire other than telling God, being honest with God, I'm struggling with this. I want you to be my sole desire. Just tell God those things. Moving from transactional, a transactional view to more of a relationship, God actually desiring to spend time with us and then from being me-focused to God-focused and his purpose. I won't go into to all of this. Some of you are familiar with the story of Mary and Martha, right? Jesus, the story basically goes where Jesus comes to the home of Martha. She's the older sister. Uh, Mary's the younger sister. And Martha's very, very busy preparing a meal for Jesus as he comes to their home. And Mary's in another space, sitting at the feet of Jesus, just spending time with him. And, of course, Martha responds, Jesus, don't you care? Just like we would. God, don't you care that my daughter was suffering? Don't you care about this, about me? Don't you care about this? And, and you'll, you'll find yourself in this position when you're really busy and at the end of your rope. Is God, don't you care? And so... Martha asked Jesus, tell, tell Mary to come in here and help me. Jesus kind of scolds her. Martha, Martha, you're worried and you're distracted by so many things, but only uh, one thing is necessary, and Mary's chosen the good part. Well, what was that? Just sitting at the feet of Jesus, talking with Jesus. I, I don't know what they talked about. I don't know who did the talking. Martha? Or, or Mary, or Jesus, 
but I'm pretty sure I know what didn't happen. I'm pretty sure Mary didn't show up with a list and say, uh, real quick, um, we're about to get real busy here, so would you give me this, would you give me this, would you give me this, would you give me this? And, uh, oh gosh, help my sister in there, she's, she's crazy. Do this and do that, and please take care of these people and do this. And do you think that's what the conversation went like? I don't think so. So as we, as we consider prayer as a discipline, I'll just leave those three suggestions, ideas, things to think through about maybe I've approached this whole prayer thing and I need a paradigm shift. Okay, so I'll ask the band to come on up and we'll conclude our chapel. Uh, maybe we should pray. Would that be a good idea? Let me, let me try to lead us. Um, I've, I always find it awkward to pray uh, before a group because my prayers aren't always typical. Um, but let's pray. Uh, Father, we call you that because you've invited us to. Otherwise, how dare? How, how dare we have the gall to call you our father, our friend, our lover? But you've invited us to do that. For some of us, it's just so easy that we express to you that you are a delight. But we really want that to be. So for those of us who find delight in so many other things, uh, thank you for your patience. Um, and like Mary, we... We just bow down and we ask that your name would be hallowed, glorified in our lives today. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes. Make sure you subscribe and share. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you.